Jameson. He's playing a pull stroke straight up in the air. Watling's going to take this one, running around to his left, two hands, and Puchara goes. Jameson has another, got too big on him. Jameson bowls full inside edge, onto the stumps, out. He is gone. Bold Jameson for 12. Jameson bowls short. Outside edge taken by Watling. Regulation. Eight down, four for Jameson. Who's onto the back foot, pulling the ball down to the long leg boundary. Dive is taken and a brilliant catch. Five wickets for Jameson. His teammates applaud. Kyle Jameson's the man of the moment in cricket. He's been a PR dream for the Black Caps since all two-plus metres of him burst into the team at Christmas. Radio Sport. And the man in question is the Black Caps hero from the second test in Christchurch, uh, man of the match performance with uh, 49 with the bat and a stack load of wickets, Kyle Jameson. Kyle, welcome into the programme. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. But good thanks wasn't the whole story. And when he said this at a press conference... I was just in a place in my career where I was, you know, just wasn't really enjoying it um, and wasn't really liking the person that I was in the field sometimes as well. So, um, look, it was just a shift that I needed to make. And, um, you know, I thought that most importantly I needed to be happy and I, um, I needed to enjoy my cricket. And, um, you know, wherever that may take me, you know, then it will. Um, so, look, it certainly paid off for me and um, yeah, very happy at the moment. The PR people and the media were... Well, caught out. What, if you're, if you feel comfortable elaborating, what, what didn't you like about your on set before even like the player that you were on the field? What, what, what do you kind of mean? Oh, look, I think um, I'm a pretty fiery cat on the, you know, on the field. I'm pretty aggressive, and um, I think it just sort of came out in ways. Um, that I necessarily didn't really like. And I sort of Kia ora, like I'm that. Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, how top sports people are opening up about their mental health battles. It's intense, it's immediate, it's unending. So, for example, if it's, if it's rugby, every training, everything that they do, every game is filmed by at least three or four cameras and a drone. So every detail of their job is videoed, it's clipped... It's played back. They're critiqued. That's David Galbraith, former psychologist to the sports stars from the Chiefs to the White Ferns. More from him shortly. But first, I visited Kyle at his Auckland home just before he headed to Sydney for the first one-day international against Australia today. I asked him what made him talk about his mental health at that press conference in February. It was almost awkward, did you plan to talk about that, or did you...? No, look, it was, it was even post, I guess, the press conference, I was talking um, to our media guy and said that kind of took a turn where I didn't know it was going to go, and the move from Canary to Auckland, I knew, you know, f- for me there'd been some stuff behind that, and at some point in time that someone was going to ask me about that move, and probably still something I'm trying to work out how do I articulate the story behind that, the mental side of things and mental health and that sort of thing, is very important. Yeah, look, it sort of took a turn where I didn't necessarily think it was going to go, but look, I guess it's opened up a small conversation now and long may that continue. Because it felt like the way they were asking you questions, they didn't know how far to push it. You know, they were yeah. interested. It was awkward because they weren't talking about sport, really, mm. were they? Yeah, yeah, look, it's, a, it's obviously a delicate kind of topic and I think because it's probably not spoken about um, as much, People don't know how to kind of broach the subject or how far to, to push or what. And like you said, it was 
sports journalists talking about sport and about the upcoming test and that sort of thing. So probably not a whole lot of experience necessarily in that kind of topic. So it was a little bit off the cuff, but like you said, it was kind of not sure how far you know you wanted to push. And so, can you talk about what happened? Oh, I think you know I'd probably had some stuff a few years previously from a bit of a. Um, I guess a relationship breakdown, and so I'd, I'd experienced some stuff over the course of a year, two years, and that was a work in progress um, through seeing different people. And um, so you you had some counselling from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I dragged on for a few months, and it was outside cricket at that point where I was just like, I need to talk to someone. I can't just keep going on. I guess in the thought pattern that I was in, and that was just a constant battle for a period of time, and it was something that I was looking to you know continue to work on and put myself in a better headspace and then probably the last last year or so of my time in Christchurch was just the um, environment that I kind of found myself in was I guess quite negative and for want of a better phrase toxic and yeah I'd go through days and weeks and that sort of thing of bottling stuff up and then it'd kind of come to a head in, in whatever way and um, what I mentioned in that initial interview was sometimes my outlet was on the cricket field so you know whether it's talking to guys or my emotion maybe in the best of me at times you know, so you would get angry on the field yeah yeah I think I've always probably played the game in a passionate way which um, I think probably people have seen over the last few weeks yeah. as well but but that's kind yeah. of a good passion yeah, yeah. like when you get a wicket the fist pump and it's yeah yeah and look, I think that's kind of a um like a positive outlet for it and that probably reflects probably the space I'm in now mm. whereas at the time the celebrations would go a fraction too far or I'd push it aside and then the people close to you kind of then once you sort of let the guard down take the brunt of it but you know it's just low energy grumpiness and so I just kind of got to a point where I was like right I'm not enjoying my cricket at the moment and this is kind of not really the way that I want my journey to mm. unfold uh, which led me to, to moving up to Auckland. When you say it was toxic, the environment mm. was toxic, was it the cricketing environment or was it your home environment in Christchurch? More so, I think, the cricket side of things. And I think toxic is probably a bit of a harsh way of, of phrasing, but I just think probably the relationship, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone, it just wasn't. We were on two different wavelengths. and Between you and your coach? Yeah, I think just, uh-huh. just in general... Coach staff, yeah, just just within I guess the whole group, and it's I don't want to single anyone out in that, but and look, it's also looking at myself as well, and yeah, you're very eloquent in the way you talk about it. So, were you talking to somebody about your situation then, or was it just you, you know you had figured all this out for yourself? Oh, a bit of both. Generally, generally being pretty good at reflecting and analysing and being able to kind of put the pieces together for myself. Jameson hasn't been afraid to seek help. He says professionals in that area have been pivotal, including New Zealand cricket mental skills expert Pete Sanford. I can talk to him about what's going on in my life and vice versa, and through the the 12 months or so leading up to to me moving and just kind of being a bit of a sounding board, it's like, well, sometimes it's calling me out, look, that's probably not the right way to go about things, and look, this is maybe a better way to manage things, and Mm. just working through the thoughts and feelings that I had through that period. During that press conference you said you didn't like yourself. Yeah, <laughs> there's probably the context around that but from a cricketing standpoint I reflected on what I wanted my journey to look like through cricket or how I wanted to portray myself and I mean sometimes you know celebrations or whatever it may be 
um, would happen, and then it come off the field, and you're just like, well, kind of why, why did I need to go to that extent? And if, so, um, what were you doing? What exactly? I mean, how would you oh, celebrate? It's just, it's just celebrations. And that's what I think probably like in the environment as well. I've always been outside of just games. You know, I've always try and work hard and push myself and. I guess that value piece around what I was trying to mm. achieve and push didn't marry up. I'd probably, um, you know, bottle it up or just get a little bit angry or and that sort of thing. And again, it's not to the extent that it's really affecting other people, but it's kind of just like, well, is there a better way of actually handling things? I just want to enjoy my cricket and, mm. and I want to play the game hard and I want to be passionate for what I'm doing. And um, But also at the end of the day, just enjoy whatever this journey gives me over the next however many years. Do you think that the headspace and I suppose the way you were feeling in Christchurch was stopping you from being the best cricketer you could be? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't think I'd be in the situation I'm in now if I hadn't shifted. At the same time, I think, it's hard to say, but I just know I'm a lot happier now. And so to, um, I guess, have that perspective around playing your first game and being in the group and just enjoying it and being grateful for the opportunities I've been given these last few weeks, whether I would have been in the headspace to be able to say the mm. same thing, I'm not quite sure. So I'm in a much better, well-rounded place now with cricket and life. When this, the headlines started coming out and the stories started coming out, one headline was something like mental battles or mm. mental struggles. Black Caps newcomer Kyle Jamieson has opened up about his mental health struggles, admitting it hasn't all been rosy in his rise to the New Zealand team. How did that make you feel? I mean, were you happy with that? I'm not really sure, really. It's um, a conversation, I think, that needs to happen more, and it's a conversation that I want to be a part of, and I'm still trying to probably work through how I want to articulate uh, my story and to what extent I want to, um, I guess, delve into it. And I'm probably not going to get that right all the time and it's going to, um, I guess, get reported or um, rephrased or pushed out in different mm. in different ways. And that's just kind of the nature, I guess, of the industry. But if it can open up more doors around that conversation, then I know my story and the people close to me know the journey that I've been on. And that's, you know, to me, all that matters. What sort of reaction did you get from your, your cricketing mates or pe- team members? Did oh, it wasn't a whole lot, to be fair. I haven't really delved too much more into it. Yeah, I don't know whether they read it or anyone saw it or, or what, but you it's know that you're It's not typical, though, is it? Well, I mean, I guess it's becoming more typical because there are some top sports people like John mm. Kerwin, but really that image of staunch yeah. guy who doesn't talk about his feelings. So yeah, 100%. I think that's been, I guess, the stigma around it for such a long period of time and some of the All Blacks have done a great job at the moment around coming about and talking around that vulnerability piece and which is massive and I think kudos to them like from you know, to opening that door and hopefully through that it just breaks down the stigma for for everyone. Jameson may have felt alone, but he isn't. He's a couple of former All Blacks. Yeah, in the mighty 10, I sort of had a little bit of time off and um, came back and wasn't wasn't really enjoying rugby, so I'm um, just making sure I make the most of uh, my season this year. Why weren't you enjoying your rugby? You know, just overdoing it, I guess. Trying too hard to impress the wrong people, so... You know, you can see why people really take breaks and, you know, mentally, uh, mentally refresh. I nearly retired in 2015. I um, 
I was down, eh? I hate, I hated rugby. I was like, I shouldn't feel like this. Like people, I was walking down the street and I look people in the eye, and I'm and I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, he's looking at me, going, "You're a pussy. You're so useless." That's Akira Ioani and Israel Dag opening up about their own struggles. Last year, some All Blacks, including Adi Savia and TJ Perinara, set up an informal support group to talk about mental health. It started off as just socialising during the season, but evolved into opening up about a range of topics such as fatherhood, family and well-being. And it's not just rugby starting to acknowledge the issues. Here's mixed martial arts fighter Shane Young. So I know it sounds bad to be saying it after a fight, like a big win, like we have the highest youth suicide rates. But I'm going to keep saying that till it's the opposite, till it's not true, till we have the highest rates of kids like helping each other, you know, the most corridor, most, the strongest community as a whole. So I think because New Zealand is like, we're a bunch of warriors, we all just like enjoy fighting culture and for someone to come out like as a fighter and be like, yo, I cry and I look after my mental health and I talk to people, I talk to men and like we talk about emotions and stuff, to know that that's all good. Psychologist David Galbraith has written a book called Unleashing Greatness. I spoke to him in the Hamilton studio before he headed off to talk to some top cyclists at the Cambridge Velodrome. The prevalence of mental health in elite athletes is no different than the prevalence of mental health in the general population. What's different is the context in which someone who has a mental health struggle has to operate every day when they go to their work. And what I mean by that is that the elite sport context is very special. It's this place where the feedback is intense, it's immediate, it's unending. So, for example, if it's, if it's rugby, every training, everything that they do, every game is filmed by at least three or four cameras and a drone, so every detail of their job is videoed, it's clipped, it's played back, they're critiqued. They sit down and talk to somebody about how well they were doing or how well they weren't doing. So if you can consider that context as a day-to-day employment environment, that's really rare. It's not very often you find, you may, the military may have that as well because the attention to detail there is about life and death. But in general, the population doesn't have that degree of scrutiny or expectation of performance, and yet in sport they do. It's extreme. That's where the pressure is very real. And you'd add into that that their performance on the world stage is directly related to their financial support, whereas the general population, and again, that's that's not the norm. You know, you don't critique that way. You, you, you're paid each week or however your salary goes through, and it's not, it's not the same thing. That is intense. I, oh, I didn't realise that it was that level of scrutiny. And mm. of course, and, and that is um, something that's developed over time. I mean, mm, you that's know, elite sport now. That's that's it, right? That's the era we live in where sport has become this this thing. And do people know what they're getting themselves in for when they get to that level? I mean, are they prepared for it? It's a good question. I, I I think once people start moving through the the levels of sport, whatever sport they're in, very early age now they're introduced to a culture of high performance. So I'm seeing that, you know, if we'd go back to rugby, mm. high performance is now part of your secondary school system. You know, first 15 rugby is televised on TV. 
they have strength and conditioners, they have a gym program, they have video reviews, so they, in many ways they are miniature professional rugby leagues. Um, are they prepared for it? I think we, rugby does a wonderful job of trying to prepare young men for the professional game, um, and there's some great things that happen within that space around mental health and helping them also create life plans as well as rugby plans. And yet in saying that, I don't think you can really prepare someone for what we talked about unless they actually have to experience it to really understand what's coming. And are there particular sports, I mean I'm thinking of cricket, where it's tougher than other sports. You have the sledging and then Mm. you're Mm. you're part of a team but there's almost hours that you're spending on your own as well, especially if you're fielding. And then when you get out, you have that long walk off the field and if it's international, you know, you have got thousands, millions of you, count for TV, watching you as you walk off the field, that sort of, you know, the shame of it. Yes, yes. Are there particular sports where it's tougher, do you think, on on mental health? You're, You're spot on. Each sport has a very different context. So if you take golf, for example, you know, you're out there for four hours, you're by yourself, you have a caddy, you could be on the other side of the world, you could be 19 years old, first year as a rookie professional, um, having to put money on your visa card, your visa card's getting close to being um, limited. Um, you're not sure whether you're going to make the cut. If you don't make this cut, your visa card's going to bounce. You're not going to sure where you're going to be staying and how you're going to get back. You know, so that you can get a bit of an idea about what that must be like. And then you're in there for four hours, and you've got another two days or three days or four days of uh, you know competition. So the sports vary depending on how long it holds somebody in that intense space. Mm. So there are variations across the sports, and you know you've talked about cricket. And I think you're right, an opening the batter in cricket, or if you're in the field and you've batted poorly, and now you've got to go and field, and you've got to carry that all day of how you performed, and you know it can hold you in the washing machine of emotional upset for a very long time. How people deal with that is of real relevance, because irrespective of the context, whether it's the 35 seconds, whether it's four hours, the variable about how you experience that space is your perspectives, how you see what success is, for example, how you see yourself in relation to sport and your identity, and those variables have a massive influence on the experience of success and failing in sport. And that's that perspective for me, which is something that is incredibly important for coaches and parents and, you know, we talked about schools earlier, for teachers to understand where resilience sits. And resilience is, you know, at a core level, resilience is about your perspective of the current context in which you're experiencing or... In influences everything that then flows from that moment. So if you have a perspective that has that that context is directly related to your self worth, and then you haven't performed, now you're in a really um, risky position of feeling pretty bad about yourself. And if that's for four hours, we have to be out on a golf course or on a cricket pitch. That can be a pretty horrible place to be in. So when you're working with people in these Mm. situations, what do you say to them? There's layers here. If we think about human development, um, healthy human development builds layers of natural resilience anyway. And so if we think about raising healthy children, it's really relevant for thinking how we support athletes to function well as well. And so the discussions with an adult athlete mirror the same layers that we want to evolve in our children to embrace school and embrace challenges and step into opportunities and to see those moments in time that aren't directly related to their own identity or integrity. So the outcome of an event doesn't influence whether I feel good about myself. 
And so the, those layers that we want to start building with a child are the same as we want to start building with an athlete. And so the perspectives for me, which are really important, you know, if we think about labelling those for people to understand them, the discussions with an athlete help them understand that, and ironically, as simple as it sounds, that they are a human being. They have an identity that's attached to a history and an ancestry. They are choosing to be in that sport and they're choosing to be doing that thing. And then off that, really moving, we're starting to move to discussions of maturity, where the maturity is realising that sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. And if we can keep those discussions going, well, then we can have a discussion about perspective, about what success really is. And what I find is that the athletes that have perspective that success is related to effort and pride deeply attached to the way that they do what they do or how they do what they do versus outcome and numbers and world rankings and what people were saying about them in social media have a very different relationship with pressure and a very different relationship with performance in the moment of pressure. There's a, a sense of embracing the moment. that It, it, it contributes to the thrill mm. and the competitiveness that makes elite sport that very unique thing. And so they, ha- they end up like an adventurer in that space rather than someone who is desperate for that space to be successful in an outcome sense because it helps them feel worthwhile and it helps them feel that what they've contributed or t- invested in was worthwhile. You know, if we think about how we want teenagers to consider the world at the moment with ISIS and terror attacks and all of these threats... It's, it's no different. We still want them to embrace the reality of the world that we live in, but we still want them to go through the Auckland airport at 18 years old and embracing on some sort of adventure somewhere in the world with a confidence and ambition. Yeah. We want athletes to be the same. We want them to go to a world-class event with confidence and ambition and a sense of curiosity. I wonder how fast I can run. I wonder how many runs I can make. I wonder how fast I can bowl. I wonder. So there's a wonderment in that space. Now, if we can get that into someone's psychology... The moment of pressure becomes a thrill. Back to Kyle Jamieson and what it's like to go from obscurity to the hotshot cricketer everybody wants to talk about. It's a bit weird. Like I've been of a bit of a crazy ride the last few weeks, and um, I'm probably still looking for a wee moment to take a step back and have a breath and actually soak up um, what's all unfolded. And it's something you you chase since you're a kid um, to be able to play one game for New Zealand and. Um, just to be in the group and I've been lucky enough to achieve that now and um, I think I guess kind of from where I'm at is it's just I just want to play cricket and try and get better and just enjoy it. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Kyle Jamieson and David Galbraith. Kakiti anō. Anno.